Hey folks, welcome to Dance Some Podcast. We are here in the same place we were a week ago. We haven't moved. Well, we've moved a little bit. Uh, Covid yes. safe. Covid safe. We're still not in the same room, which sucks, but we'll uh, we'll live through it, I guess. I mean, this was recorded as a two-parter. Okay, so you know, let's pull back the the, the veil here. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Isol- I'm not in day seven of isolation. I'm in. I <laughs> were. <laughs> the, the the day before recording the first episode, five of my colleagues were diagnosed positive with COVID. So at that rate, every single person I work with is now <laughs> off work with COVID. So yeah, uh, things are going well over here in Scotland. It was sunny. I'm guessing that by the time this comes out, it's probably not because that's how things kind of go here. Yeah, I think we got like our last four days of summer, and then uh, and then it stopped. So I'm sure I'm sure we had a nice time. Was, rooms isolating, <laughs> looking at the sun outside. I was outside deliberately trying to get burnt for most of the last week because uh, you know it's got to get me through the winter. Um, and maybe not so much last week, but certainly spent a fair time recently listening to the very famous band Arctic Monkeys. Uh, and you're here for our discussion of the album Humbug. And yes, they are a very, very fucking famous band. If you're only joining us at this juncture, please go back and listen to episode one where we acknowledge that mm-hmm. <laughs> at length and try to articulate the fact that we're not here to promote Arctic Monkeys. They don't need the help. Although we're not here to shit in them either. We're pretty ambivalent towards them. In fact, maybe even slightly positive, you know, in the world of pop music, it's nice to have a band that seem like the real deal. Uh, and even though I don't love everything they put out, there's a place for it. Uh, you don't feel like it's, you know, sending bad messages out to kids and all that kind of shit. So, regardless, they're a big deal. I'm just, I'm glad that they are the band that are still going and not the Libertines. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's, if anything comes out of this, uh, then that's that's it. <laughs> yep. Um, so, what we're going to do is we're going to finish our little tour of their back catalogue. We, we got up to the end of... AM, their huge album from 2013. Wait, the first couple albums, phase one, uh, much more kind of indie, cheeky, chappy, high energy. Uh, although full of little hints at what they're going to try and do. Then phase two from 2009-2010 onwards, uh, they had Humbug and Suck It and See, which kind of work well together. things sort of slowed down, got a bit more intricate, still quite indie at points, not exactly heavy, but definitely a lot of different ideas uh, coming to the fore. Uh, AM was this sort of third phase where 
I mean, I, I I pointed out that I find it quite surprising that it's such a big album. I don't think it's a bad album by any uh, by any means, but I do think it's strange that it connected so well, given how slow and how dark it can be at points. But hey, fair enough. And then uh, in 2018, they released an album called Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino. Jesus in the day spa, filling out the information form. Mama got a uh, This is sort of a concept album. Um, all written from the perspective of characters on a moon resort uh, in Tranquility Base, which is part of the moon. That's where the moon landing took place in 1969, Tranquility Base. Yeah, well, allegedly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as, a, as opposed to a soundstage. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, we, we, right at the end of the last episode, Dave made what I think is a key point in the AM uh, looks and sounds like a band with, with a lot of self-confidence and a lot of clout, really pushing through a product that they wanted to make. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of execs, if my finger's on the pulse, which is, I think, what I'm known for, mm-hmm. um, yeah. a lot of execs probably said to them, hey, guys, could you throw in a kind of jaunty single, maybe? Maybe a, a bit you look good in the dance floor. But they sort of were like, no, we're going to do it the way we want to do it. And I think that's a luxury you're afforded when you have a reasonable amount of clout. And also working with a label like Domino, who ha- who were behind them and independent and stuff like that. Um, Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino is that tenfold to me. Um, I think a decision like this album maybe seems inevitable in hindsight, but get, like given the profile of the band, uh, but it, it would take a fairly brave label executive to tell the Arctic Monkeys no uh, at this point, uh, tell Alex Turner no at this point, because the guy himself has kind of transitioned into being a brand. You know, this is when he was, you know, dating Alexa Chung or... I think it's maybe slightly after he was dating Alexa Chung, living in New York City. You know, the guy was hot shit at this He's point. He's the mm-hmm. bohemian king of Sheffield. You go. Lord of Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> Baron of Shoreditch. <laughs> so yeah, a concept album written largely by Turner uh, on a piano, I believe, in his sort of uh, Brooklyn apartment. or LA. His, LA, LA moved, apartment? He'd was moved it? to LA by this point, yeah. Oh, I thought it was in New York. Well, okay. Um, it's a big stylistic departure. Uh, as much as I have a lot of time for the band, I can't really go with them on that departure. I think the album has some okay moments, but is largely pretty dull and a bit self-indulgent. Not in a million years That I need so many lovers Can I please have my money back My virtue um, this is where I personally wonder if they have asked too much of their audience. Uh, originally, I kind of felt 
as I've mentioned, that I thought, you know, maybe AM is that point. But it seems like the audience, well, it, it definitely seems like the audience went with them on AM, given Absolutely. its enormous success. Um, this one I'm not so sure of. I feel like they may have slightly jumped the shark. Um, and I, d- I actually don't even think it's for like huge creative rewards as you may have had with the likes of Radiohead, who, by the way, are Arctic Monkeys' nemesis. Uh, <laughs> fucking hate the Arctic Monkeys, Tom York, especially. Um, you know, Dave, you called them in the last episode, the Arctic Monkeys, you called them a working class Radiohead. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, this album, I think, doesn't necessarily have the creative rewards that Radiohead got with the likes of OK Computer and even on into Kid A and stuff. I think it's OK. I don't think anybody's really hailed it as being this giant musical accomplishment. And the sales figures, whilst, you know, the band are still famous and so the sales figures are decent, um, aren't mind blowing. Uh, I think. I just, here, I just want to say, Pyfort gave it 8.1 out of 10. <laughs> And QU yeah. five out of five. <laughs> so, yeah, but you know, I mean, the crux, of, the fulcrum of those two public publications <laughs> actually coming together right, on totally. the same thing is it, pretty, it's, it's pretty unlikely. We sales figures we spoke about it in the last episode. This was the biggest selling vinyl of the last mm-hmm. twenty. Certainly, this millennium, like the last twenty-five years, I think it was. I actually think that there's there's something in that. Um, given that the vinyl sales have been astronomical, but the streams are sort of a fraction. Yeah, it's of what not. It's getting. not a singles record. It's not like songs on here are not going on teenage girls' workout playlists exactly. or on uh, you know wedding dance floor favorites for exactly. slightly indie couples. But folk who have bought a record player will definitely buy this because they go, oh yeah, the, no, this is the album. I need to, you know, I, I need to listen to an album, so I better get the new Arctic Monkeys record because, you know, it's an album. And I, I've got so many plants from Ikea as well. I, I got 42 plants. And I got a, I got some coffee table books. And I think I, I think I got a stovetop coffee maker. <laughs> well, that's it. I think they're, I think what that shows is they may be connecting to a, diff- a different audience here. Like, they, they may be, you know, a smaller, more specialised one. And I think that could have, like, real implications for their status and relevance in the next few years. Um, because, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if they backpedal for this or if that combination of self-confidence and clout takes them onwards further into this territory. I or do they just try something totally different? Yeah, or do they take a left turn yet? Because I just don't see the majority of kids trying to, like, you know, girls that want to get on their boyfriend's shoulders with glittery cheeks and folk drinking alcopops that transmit buying into this going yeah. forward. What, what I think is interesting is, see, for the first four records, I think they grew as their audience grew. Yeah, I was going to say that, and, yeah. And I think, like, by, by the time you, you get to suck it and see, I, they are slightly more mature, and it's like, oh, but so are our listeners. You know, they've been listening to us for five years, and they've come on this journey with us. Then with the AM... They come out with these big pop hits and they suddenly gain brand new 20 year old, you know, list- like all their old listeners are now hitting 30, but they get a whole load of, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds coming mm-hmm. in on AM. But then all of a sudden here, they're like, oh, let's let's do a record for all the 35 year old fans that we have now. <laughs> yeah, that is kind of what it feels like. It feels like they fell in love with David Bowie uh, as well. I mean... The thing is, in the live sets, and I mean, just having watched them live not so long ago, uh, 
you can take it if it's interspersed with the likes of I bet that you look good in the dance floor. You can take it live because it's got that. But as they go further into this territory and the ratio starts to change where more of the songs come from this era and less of the songs come from the older era, the bouncy, catchy, hooky ones that people want to sing along with, I think they may hit a bit of a wall. I mean, on this on this record, uh, the, the, the title track... Um, does have a lot of Josh Holmes still lingering about. It's got a lot of David Bowie. I've been on a bender, back to that prophetic esplanade Where I ponder all the questions but just managed... It's got maybe a hybrid between the two and maybe even hints to a guy called Chris Goss who worked with Josh Holmes a lot and he was part of the Masters of Reality and stuff. It, it's decent. It's sort of noirish, but honestly, I think the label must, you know, the label has quite possibly lost the upper hand to an extent here, given the clout of the band. And they might be looking at this and thinking, what festival crowd is going to give a fuck about this tune? Because I don't see it. At yeah, all. but I, I feel like they can play the South Bank Centre and charge a hundred quid a ticket. Absolutely. Like th- that's what they've moved to. Yeah, Nick Cave territory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the sixth track on it, four out of five, I think is probably one of the standout tunes on it. Um, yeah, for sure. Lovely look, you could meet someone you like during the meteor strike. It is that easy. Lunar surface on a Saturday night, dressed up in silver and white with coloured old grey whistles. It's a stick on 70s period Bowie tune, though. That, that's what it is. And yeah, absolutely. Further illustrates that the target market, certainly for this album, and maybe how Alex Turner sees himself is changing. You know, I kind of feel as well though, like maybe he's getting a little bit ahead of himself. You know, that I mean. The, Okay, they've been about for a while, but they're still relatively young guys. And if you go f- too far down this Q magazine route too soon, it kind of becomes a bit of a creative dead end. You mm-hmm. know, you kind of write yourself out of relevance, and then it just takes some other band to fucking take your place pretty um, easily. He said that he was listening to a lot of Serge Gainsbourg, uh, Leonard Cohen, um, Francois Which is int- Robles. Robles. It's interesting you mentioned Q because, like, the reviewer for that described it as strange and wonderful but one that almost feels like Arctic Monkeys have embarked on their own full band side project and that is kind of what it sounds like it's like oh this is a creative avenue that we could explore and yeah fair fair enough like one of them or a couple of them could have could have done this as a side project and it would you know no great shakes it would have been like all right that's fine but totally. like what they've done is they've put their full fucking weight brand. and their name and their brand behind it and it's like Oh, that's a really strange turn for everybody. <laughs> I don't it's, know. It's, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if they've overplayed their hand on it uh, and how they how they deal with that. Do they backtrack a bit, or do they just fucking plow onwards? I mean, given that I do think they seem like quite a brave band, they may just choose to fucking just like batter on with it. And I think those festival crowds will change quickly as a result of that. You know, they don't care about Serge Gainsbourg and Leonard Cohen. They don't give a fuck about that. It's kind of fickle, but they they don't. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. But 
the album we're here to discuss, let's uh, cycle back eight years to 2010 uh, and talk about Humbug, um, mm. which I have a fair bit to say about. Um, so they've just finished their sort of sojourn into Last Shadow Puppets, which, as we mentioned, sort of slowed things down and I think gave Alex Turner a sense of cool, uh, a little bit more sex appeal and a set, like maybe a bit more of a sense of identity and wanting to plough his own furrow. Um, on this album... It's very well known that they collaborated with Josh Holm from Queens of the Stone Age. Uh, I think that was a really interesting decision. I think it's a, a decision that worked really well. Um, not all of the tracks by Josh Holm. Uh, James Ford, the guy who had worked on the previous album and would go on to work on Suck It and See, produced four of the songs, including two singles. Um, the first track, My Propeller, Secret Door, Cornerstone, and a bonus track, which... Uh, I can't remember what edition it was on but I haven't got my strange they were his works Um, this album was also uh, tellingly released in some formats with a studio cover of Red Right Hand Uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds tune which yep. again shows a slight it's, it's an interesting choice if you're if you're looking at where this band are going and how they see themselves that's an interesting one um, but more than half of the album was recorded at Rancho de la Luna with Josh Holm that's where Queens of Stone Age recorded their debut album uh, for Queens of Stone Age fans uh, the Josh Holm influence in this album is just massive there's no getting away for that Um how much exactly he contributed is kind of hard to tell. The songs would mostly have been written in advance, yes. Um, yes, the band was listening to a lot of Cream, Hendrix, Black Sabbath at this period, uh, you know, anecdotally. Um, were the songs maybe composed with their intent to go and record with Josh Homme in mind? Uh, did Josh Homme play an active part in slowing songs down, maybe dropping the vocal down the register? Is it just a coincidence? I would say that's probably the least likely. Um, I think there seems to be a bit of a Wikipedia war about this, because if you look at the Wikipedia for this, um, the track list is credited solely to Alex Turner, uh, and it also says Alex Turner wrote the, ha- the whole album, and then in the literal sentence in the edit after it, it says co-written by Josh Holm. Did you, so, see, the, did you see the source on that? That was a Pitchfork article saying they've been working with them, but that was a, it doesn't actually say co-written the album. But the thing is, what what I thought was quite interesting was that they spent 10 days on pre-production of this album with Josh Holm in LA before they went to Rancho de la Luna or Rancho de la Luna. That's possibly where that kind of blurry, you know, period of like that 10 days of pre-production. Pre-production, in my my experience, probably usually involves a fair amount of writing. You know, yeah, and uh, things things that come out, things that go beyond just the production and the sound of the record um, are things like the wee guitar solos or the little um, that are very Josh Hom. The key and as well, like the they key don't nece- yeah. and the, yeah, they're not necessarily vital parts to the melody. They, they like you're not getting royalties off them, but I mean they are very Josh Hom and like they're, they're they key are huge fingerprints. Decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
Arctic Monkeys had actually originally met Josh Holm after they supported Queens of the Stone Age uh, in Houston in 2007. Um, on this album, Alan Johannes was also an engineer, which I will say I think also plays a part in, in those guitar tones that start to appear, um, some from Queens of the Stone Age, and Josh Holm in general, but all the projects he's been involved with have had very idiosyncratic guitar tones where he's really extreme EQs and them sometimes very midi and you know they almost sound like synths or, I mean sometimes they sound like brass they're, they're so heavily uh, altered um, the vocals in this record are less yelped and barked and sort of there's less indie blur to it it's much cooler which again is a lot more sort of typically Josh Homme um, it also does it does feature some co-writing Alison Mossart of The Kills does vocals in one track and co-wrote it um, in terms of the reception, uh, it was number 15 in the USA, it was the lowest charting album there, uh, it was number 1 in the UK, Belgium and Ireland, number 2 in Australia and number 3 in Japan, which I think is quite an interesting stat. Uh, this is also when uh, P. Diddy became an outspoken fan of the band, um, we mentioned that Alex had you know, been living in NYC with Alexa Chung, so uh, there's a lot of like rock star patter sort of taking shape. Alex Turner's spoken about the sort of mixed reaction that the album got, um, which obviously we'll dissect a bit, but he said, uh, you can't spend all your time worrying about them people who are like, I'm not into this long-haired bollocks. Fair enough. Um, a writer called Steve Erlewine at uh, All Music noted, and I think quite astutely, uh, that the record wasn't as accessible as the two precursors, but, quote, may mean more in the long term than it does on its own. And I'm totally behind that statement. That's, I mean, that's basically why I'm bringing it to the table. I think the significance of this record is seen in where the band have ended up, and especially in the likes of AM, more so than it is just in isolation. Uh, in an NME article, uh, a guy called Mike Williams wrote, if Arctic Monkeys had never walked into the desert with Josh Holm to record Humbug, uh, they would never have made AM. Humbug was as much about subverting people's impressions of who the band were as it was an album in its own right. Again, really behind them in that comment. Uh, recently, Enemy and Consequences of Sound have both called this the band's weakest album, um, but by contrast, the likes of The Independent said it was their best. I think it is without doubt their most polarising. Apparently, uh, on the initial broadcast, so I think it was like July 2009, BBC Radio 1 aired Crying Lightning, the sort of first cut from the album to, to, to hit people's ears, uh, in inverted commas, leaked, but obviously deliberately. Crying Lightning And how you like to aggravate the ice cream man on rainy afternoons And the reception was just a little bit confused. Is the best way I've seen it described. Like the the audience were sort of like excited to hear it, but also like this is not what we expected. We're not exactly negative about it, but very unsure of you know it was the next it was it was the next year that the album came out, but very unsure of what they were going to get. Um, the headline dreading and leads just a few days after the album came out, and and I think at that point they kind of set in motion a transition from indie upstarts to rock stars and. They did a live cover of that uh, Redden and Leeds uh, back-to-back of Red Right Hand and I think that alone shows their intent and probably really confused some of that some of that in the audience. 
I don't know if you guys were even really particularly aware of them at this point, but what are your impressions of the album? What are your impressions of it sitting in their canon? Well, I mean, I guess we'll talk track by track and then I'll give you my overall score. <laughs> I think it is a real sonic development. Um, I think it's, it is very interesting seeing the band grow and become much more of a studio rock band than a live indie band. It's it's easy to have a hangover from being cultural, like sort of flash in the pans like they were, or, you know, like being just really fucking hot shit with a massive, you know, single. Um, that would just kill a lot of bands. And sometimes you're just like, oh, do you know what? You've done one or two records that are really sharp and really vital you don't need to do anything more and I think if they just left it after two records they would have a pretty solid reputation um, and you know they'd have been able to go off and do you know solo stuff or whatever it's just it's really interesting hearing the band develop and you, you see other bands of their type like I don't know the Killers or Kings Leon or um, or even like previous it was like Oasis and Blur and it's that third record or it's that album that they decide to grow and like sometimes yeah they just get bogged down and stuck and mm, yeah. this was a band that sounded like they were just yeah totally finding confidence to then go off and just do whatever the fuck they wanted and I, I, yeah I'm not necessarily sold that it's the most enjoyable album but it's certainly an important one for them yeah yeah I had my decision to take a left turn and also actually I have to say I admire the publics and their fans decision to go along the, or go on this journey with them which they mm. no doubt have um, even yeah, to this can day I, can I, yeah can I just jump in and say I think that's actually the crux of what I'm saying about AM as well I'm impressed that people rose to the challenge of that I think they didn't underestimate their audience and they were rewarded for it mm-hmm. and it surprises me because like I'm fucking cynical you know I'm like People aren't going to be into that, and they were. So good for them. They probably kicked open the doors for all this stuff like Idols and stuff like that to break through as well, because it surprises me that the likes of Idols can become as as big as they've gotten. And I think that's because minds were opened uh, by the likes of AM. Yeah, and I think that that journey begins on this record. Like they've said, they had two albums which they could have just walked away, went, I'm I'm done, or just continued doing the same shit. They They could have done that for forever. But I admire the decision to do this record. I admire the decision to do it with Josh Hall, mostly. I think that was clever, and you couldn't have called that at all, right? You, you would never have seen that happening. I think that's mm-hmm. pretty cool, too. Um, I agree with Dave. I don't necessarily think it's the most enjoyable record. I don't actually think they're the most enjoyable band, period. Um, but there's a lot to like on this album, for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I would say, like, so you look at other English or British indie bands, like, kind of per decade... So, you know, you've got the Beatles and the Kinks to begin with, but then in the 80s, you've got the likes of Joy Division and the Smiths. Then in the 90s, you've got Oasis and Blur. And then 2000s, it's kind of, you know, Libertines and the Arctic, Arctic Monkeys. Monkeys. Yeah. Um, Oasis, their third record, you know, they'd, they'd released a working class anthemic album and then they kind of, a bloated follow-up, but, it, you know, it still had the fucking songwriting chops you know, mm-hmm. to capture the imagination of the British working class. And then they released Be Here Now. And, I mean, that was just a cocaine fueled dirge trying to be the biggest band in the world. But they didn't, they, they weren't good enough musicians and they 
didn't test themselves sonically. They just took loads of cocaine and tried to rip off the Beatles. Um, Sold all right, though, eh? Well, in the first week, and then everybody realised how fucking pish it was. Uh, whereas this album didn't sell nearly as much as Be Here Now. Um, but, I mean, it fucking cemented Arctic Monkeys as a much better band historically than Oasis, I think. Yeah, uh, but I think Oasis's decision with the third album really pigeonholed them. They, that yeah. was that was their sound. They were going to find it really, really Yeah, hard. we're going to be Oasis, but more Oasis. Yeah, exactly. Whereas Arctic and, Monkeys went, oh, we're going to be, we're just going to fucking try some new shit. Yeah, it's that point where you decide, do we want to do what we do to its maximum capacity or do we want to take a chance but open up the possibilities? And mm-hmm. it's, it's two quite different decisions. I mean, I'd, I'd be here now is a fucking huge album. You know, it's it's totemic, man. I mean... Stand by me, nobody knows the way it's gotta be. Yeah, no, that album's fucking terrible. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that was the yeah, that was yeah. a big one, and uh, all around the world, don't go away. Um, will we get? Will we dive into the tunes in this one? Hang on a second, hang hang on. I just I just want to come back to this be here now thing. That's been certified seven times platinum in the UK, and the first Arctic Monkeys album's been certified six times platinum, which is not a kick in the ass off when you think about numbers. Is the platinum certification the same as it used to be? Three hundred, I think. Three hundred yeah. thousand yeah. in the UK. Mm-hmm. I wondered if they'd lowered the bar when people just stopped giving a fuck. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. I mean, who actually buys records? Um, so, I mean, let, let's be honest. We're we're absolutely not going to escape Queens of Stone Age references here. So, I might as well just dispense any pretense there. Uh, the opening track, My Propeller. You've got to make your descent slowly. Enjoy. Not actually produced by Josh Holm, uh, controversially, um, but I think even with this tune, if you just, from the first five seconds, if you jump between this and their other stuff sonically, it definitely feels really different. The vocal that Alex brings in really early on has Josh Holm written all over it, that register, the cool, the slur, the tempo of it, the pacing. Um, It's a really understated opener, I think. It's a song that takes a while to get into its stride. Um, it utilises this kind of device of having an anti, a kind of anti-chorus sort of kids on it's going to do a chorus and drops off and the real hook in the song is the end refrain that comes in about 2 minutes 15 sort of cycles around itself until the end I guess maybe a wee bit like a propeller which Mm -hmm. sort of makes sense by the way he maintains this isn't about his dick I had not even considered that until I started reading about it and that whole pattern about my propeller won't spin and I can get it started on my own when are you arriving Um, yeah he's adamant he's like I would never sing a song about not being able to get a hard on so (laughs) all right um the, the end part of this, the end refrain, is such a fucking good vocal line. Um, I love the drum drops that 
are at the end of every. I think I think it's basically every line for a, for that end part. I think that itself is is a bit of a hook. You can kind of air drum along with this song, um, and also just the the guitar tones that Johannes Josh Holm thing shines mm. through in it. Even though they're not, it's not produced by him. I, I think the influence is quite apparent. Yeah, I think yeah, I think the melody is kind of good in it. Um, it gives me a, a big sixties feel with the backing vocals and the sort of it's got a really yeah, big huge sixties vibe. Yeah, really big surf vibe as well. Guitars sound yeah. a bit like the sh- is it the shadows? In yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yep. Right, it does. It has has a lot of that. Yep. I think I think the main thing that just strikes you straight away is just the amount of space that's in there. Um, the whole album's got that, hasn't it? The whole album's got so much space in it. Yeah, yeah room like so much room, and it's got a bit of groove. It's slowed down. You've got American guitar tones and chords and chord progressions. You've got the piano. The production is really nice. It's, it's quite warm. Uh, I would just say, I would say, and I think this is going to be a, a slight theme throughout. Just the guitar riff itself is a little bit monotonous, a little bit mm-hmm. ploddy for me. Um, I just feel that the yeah throughout the record, the riffs themselves are a little bit safe, but um, production wise, it's great and, it's, yeah. and it is a good song and I like the structure. You know, it's probably a fair criticism. I think. As much as they sound a bit like Queens of the Stone Age, they don't have that pure panache for 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 a riff that Queens of the Stone Age have because I mean that's a furrow they've been ploughing just incessantly and honing and honing and honing. And Arctic Monkeys are yeah. relatively new to this sound, so yeah, I mean, crying yeah, they, I mean they they got some really fucking good sharp indie riffs on the first two records. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But it's and a that, totally different ballgame to try and then write a groovy rock riff or you know yeah. a, cl- a classic rock riff. Uh, and a prime example is Crying Lightning in the second tune, which has that stompy Queens of Stone Age thing. It's a bit stodgy, but in a kind of deliberate way. Yeah, a big fat but, bass. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. not necessarily <laughs> it's not necessarily the best line. You know, it's more mm-hmm. about style than content. I think it's really interesting talking about the big fat bass. Josh Holm is, is quoted as having used a lot of weird images to try and describe the sound he's going for. I really relate to this, by the way, when I'm in the studio. The fucking king of an analogy or a metaphor. Um, one of them was, uh, and I think it might even have been this song, I want the bass to sound like a fat kid with chocolate on his face. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it kind of does. Um, that that kind of makes sense. Uh, you know, Crying Lightning is actually quite a lean song, as much as it's quite full sounding. Um, but I mean, by a minute 20 into the song, it's already tearing through the second verse and it's already stepped up as well. I think by the second chorus, the energy in it really jumps up. He's gone up a register vocally. Um, that hook really jumps out. I think the the backing vocals in this are really really well written. Uh, and you know, two minutes thirty in this song is just the solo is just absurdly Queens of Stone Age. I mean, it is it could literally have been copied and pasted off a Queens of Stone Age session in approach and tone. It's great. It works really fucking well. 
I feel once again, I, I just think, yeah, it's the slightly plodding riff on this that is what takes it down, or you know, doesn't doesn't allow me to get into it like a rock song that I might like normally. I, I it feels to me very much like you know, uh, oh, status quo. I was, um, <laughs> I, no, it doesn't necessarily sound like them, but I saw. Not a bad B- band in their day, by the way. No. Early state, uh, yeah, school. no, totally, no. But I, I, on BBC Four the other night, I saw really, really, really fucking early status quo on like black and white TV, nineteen sixty eight yep. or something, and they're playing like sort of folky. I've just learned how to play my Gretsch, and they've all got like <laughs> they're all about fourteen years old, and they've got funny little haircuts and everything. And it, like, this reminded me of that. It sounds like his guitar. He's just like looking at the camera nervously because you know they're not used to playing on stage because it's 1964 and mum's watching and he it's just it sounds a little bit nervous to me i don't know why maybe because they're playing in front of josh home uh-huh. oh yeah yeah maybe yeah, that would make me nervous um i think uh, i think it's got a real vaudeville feel that druggy guitar effect that josh home uses all the time is all over this song like you said chris mm. um yep. and the backing vocals really add that carnivalesque atmosphere to it i really like the organ there's an organ before the end like in the final mm. intro of the song which really is it an organ it i thought it was brass I, you know listening to it i actually thought it might have been like a kind of saxophone or something like, there was some kind of like weird tone that was in there and originally i'd always thought it was guitar and the, the closer i listened i was like i don't know if that is a guitar there's only keys on the album Apart from guitars well, and stuff, maybe so. it's just a tone that they've gone for that's yeah. meant to emulate that. But yeah, I mean, I know the one you mean, I mm-hmm. and it's effective, fills it up uh, a space, you know, in the palette really well. Um, <laughs> third song, Dangerous Animals. I mean, it is, at this point, a little bit funny how much of a Queens of Stone Age album it is. I mean, it doesn't stay here, but th- this song... Yeah, these first does, three records. Yeah, it, it yeah, doesn't First three songs. Yeah. Uh, is it Josh singing the intro to this tune? It sounds like it. Josh you know isn't that? on this record at all. We want the production. He doesn't yeah, they, no, they're just no try, contribution they just, at all. They're but, just trying to sound like him. Seriously, that that really sounds like Josh Homme, man. I would be amazed if that wasn't just him chipping in and not saying it. Like it's, it's probably so... somebody else. It's probably Matt or Nick because obviously they, mm. they they do a lot of really different backing vocals throughout the album that sound that are definitely well, sound like something that yeah. it's certainly deliberate. If it is, yeah. I actually think think that this song has a lot of their earlier albums in it. I think it, it it's it's less snappy, it's a bit slower, but there is a consistency with some of the, the early records. There's a kind of cheekier thing in that you know the lyrical approach of spelling out the words and and things like that. I think it it does a call back, albeit the choruses, yes, are much darker, much heavier. It's funny on this. I think in my thirty four years of listening to music, a riff will normally grab me. And then I discover the song from the riff. Whereas on this record and on this song, the riff puts me off because it's mm-hmm. fucking ploddy and annoying and basic. And then they win me back mm-hmm. because the actual rest of the song is actually very nicely built and I like the chorus and I like the production. Yep. But yeah, there's there's so many songs out there where I like the riff, but the song doesn't live up to it. Whereas this, this song far outweighs the quality of the riff. 
Yeah, it's the inverse. Mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of agree with that. I think this does feel like a little bit of a Queen's cast-off. Mm-hmm. You know, you can imagine them having this on an early B-side or something like that. It's not, it's not massively inspiring, but they do a lot with the rest of the song and the arrangement and the hooks in it. And that, like I said, they feel like newbies in this territory. You can tell that they're less sophisticated at writing these kind of riffs than the likes of Josh Holman and those guys because they've not been doing it as long. But they, they, they bring something new to the mix. Um, it's actually in this song that the recurrent theme of the record that annoyed me appears and it's a marching drums which they overuse like absolute fuck throughout the entire record. It's, it's broken up with maracas, I think it's maracas in this song, which is pretty cool. Gives it a really, really adds that carnival feel. It definitely sounds, it's some kind of weird percussion that sounds like maracas to me. And it's got that weird skipped fuzz sound in the middle eight, which like Hom uses a lot, which I really, really dig as well. When I heard the drums and I read some reviews and somebody, uh, a few people mentioned how they use marching drums all the time, I just couldn't unhear it <laughs> whenever I listened to it. Um, the fourth track, Secret Door, is one of the James Ford tracks and I think it does have a distinctly more British sound Absolutely. to it. Absolutely. It goes a bit desert rock, but it's got a sort of dreamier, softer edge, uh, and it blisses out. And I think this is one of the kind of more John Lennon esque songs the towards the for end. Sure. Absolutely, yeah, it was all over it, man. Contemporised Beatles yeah. uh, finale. It's, it's it's good it, it doesn't set me on fire But I think it's a good pacer um, I like his lyrics on it mm-hmm. I mean the lyrics are pretty solid throughout mm-hmm. um, Potion Approaching Fifth track I was biting the time zone And we embellished the banks of our bloodstreams And threw caution to the That's a, a nerve a riff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> a lot of people have pointed out the fact that this is a lot like the track Very Ape from In Utero. Yeah. It is absolutely, stylistically, a good break to what's been a series of slightly mulchier kind of desert tempos mm-hmm. that, that, you know, preceding it. But I think given that inescapable comparison to what is, let's be honest, a superior Nirvana tune, it's kind of hard to forgive it. It's not a bad song, but it is burdened by the sheer overwhelming <laughs> sense yeah, of it's just, familiarity. It's just, well, it's just three notes, basically. It's just like, da-da, and then you're like, oh yeah, no, that's that's another song, sorry. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> no not, what even you do. Ju- it's mm-hmm. not even just that riff, it's the fact that they go da-da, da-da, but then they go up a register and start going, yeah. which yeah. is the thing yeah. that Nirvana did on Very Ape. It's, it's a pity, you know, I think it needed something like that, but I'm just not sure that that riff they could the They could have, yeah. they could have just tried to, uh, Another chord. <laughs> yeah, just go dead it, dead it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just go backwards. Um, Hang on, can I just say in portion approaching, see when they bring it down to just the drums and the hand claps and the woo woos, that's pure mm-hmm. Queen's of Stone Age, man. Oh, yeah, like, and the half time chuggy ending as well. Yeah, it's totally. like, 
it, it starts as Nirvana and then finishes even more Queens of the Stone Age than they've yeah. been yet. The sixth track, uh, Fire and the Thud. Just being honest, it's the most understated and potentially the most disposable song in the record for me. Um, that might be because, spoiler alert, it precedes a song that a lot of folks, myself included, anticipate greatly. Um, subtle. It's actually a really good example of the genre, that kind of trippy desert rock with the kind of wee hints of Chris uh, Isaac, even, you know, Chris Isaac. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, it's got a kind of noirish crooner quality. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's delivered in a kind of lower register. It's dripping with sort of attempts at sex appeal. In the context of the unsung credentials of this album, the play rate on this song is 1.3% of the play rate of Do I Wanna Know, even though it's three years older than it. So, I mean, this is substantially less recognised by their fan base, let alone the, the, the public. But I do think it's slightly overshadowed by what follows it. Yeah, I mean, I think I find the main vocal really hypnotising on this song. Uh, and and I like what, I like the mix of it. I like where the bass sits in the mix, brings right in the center. And um, the guitars are really panned, like really quite mm-hmm. far out to the right and left, which is cool. Um, it's got a really unsettling psychedelic vibe, and the backing vocals throughout are just pure Beatles. Like it's a Beatles harmony, all fucking yeah, so love, Beatles. Mm-hmm. But I I like I like the way that it builds and it builds and then it falls apart. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the structure of this. So what this is all about at this point is Cornerstone, the seventh track in it. Um, it's not a Josh track For me it is Debatably this band's lyrical peak Of that kind of Cooper Clark approach It's like EastEnders Set to like a cracking kind of indie ballad um, I think it combines a Whimsy Romanticism uh, Puff Daddy agrees. By the way, Puff Daddy is uh, felt. Mm-hmm. There's like a there's like a clip of him that went viral at the time of him right down the front at a big Arctic Monkeys show for this tune because he loved it so much. I think the combination in the song of relatability and kind of the careful unfussy arrangement gives it just this massive longevity. Uh, it's succinct. It's brilliantly considered. It's got, I mean, when I listen to it, it's got little hints of like everything from Weezer to the Coral. Um, there's loads of like really good indie pop comparisons that can be made to it. I think it's just a fucking tremendous bit of unpretentious indie writing. A bit like as I said about Piledriver Waltz on the album that followed it. I, I love that to it. I think it's breezy, it's light, it's totally refreshing. It's like a fucking sorbet in the album. I saw 
I've I've listened to it a lot and I still fucking love it. It's it's super sixties, man. See when the organ comes in about one minute forty three, mm-hmm. it could easily sit in Sergeant Pepper's only Hearts Club band, like without a shadow of a doubt, man. And see they do the backwards tracking effect. That totally doubles down on that yep. Beatles vibe, man. It's it sounds almost as like an effect you use on within you without you, which is on Sergeant Pepper's. Um I think it's a really good touchstone. Um, back to the back to that particular album, that particular period of the Beatles. I think and I like it for that that feeling alone. Really, I also I feel like on the record it feels like the first six tracks they are tourists uh, trying things out, and then this is them coming back to being like, oh, this is who we are. This is this is what we do. We know this. And yeah, it's it, and it totally works. Slightly more known territory. Yeah, I'll give you that. Um, and it's nice because it provides a little ingredient of familiarity for the audience that they're trying to take with them and it's probably key in that as well this song um, the track that comes after it Dance Little Liar this is an interesting song for me because it's one that I sort of dismissed years ago and kind of skipped past and then the more I listened to it the more I, it was a real grower Is at first glance quite murky and maybe a bit pedestrian, but there there is in the first couple of minutes this kind of creepy, alluring little chorus mm-hmm. hook that is very understated to begin with, but sets the scene for a really strong ending. It maybe plays things a little bit too subtle for its own good, I'll, I'll agree to that. But it explodes into this really big guitar riff about 3.15, which I think is a yeah, really effective yeah, part. Yeah, good riff. Yep, yeah, and then it sees that through to the latter part of the tune. It just brings back that hook that they, they kind of whispered earlier on, and I, I think it's actually a really, really strong bit of writing. problem is that unfortunately a lot of people including me for a long time may have checked out of the tune by that point it takes a little bit of work but i do think so it's, it's a good example of how the band were not writing for commercial viability they were writing to their own tastes they were writing mm-hmm. to stuff that they thought was artistically strong and this is one of the tunes that the longer i've been into this it's really it's become one of the highlights i really like the the vocal production on this they feel really midi almost distorted as well which is cool mm-hmm. Great backing vocals too, which are really buried and quite understated. Uh, I love the guitar solo section. I mean, the guitars sound totally lush, man. There's a, there's a lead guitar, which is really reverby and dirty, while the rhythm is full of like slapback echo. And it's really hard to get slapback echo correct uh, on any guitar sound, right? I think, I think it's a great idea, but getting it right and getting it to sound good, I think, can be quite difficult. But they mm-hmm. totally crack it on this for sure, man. Loads of layers of guitar at the end as well. Not quite yeah. as much as the last song, but <laughs> there's loads. <laughs> yeah, 
Track 9, Pretty Visitors, the opening organ in that really reminds me of a band called Murder City Devils. I don't know if you guys are familiar with them. I've heard of them, yeah. 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 But then it very quickly pops into something that I think stylistically sounds as close to their first record as they have in... Yeah, this is old school. It's it's fast, it's energetic. Mm -hmm. Fucking great drums, to be fair. Yeah, totally. Yeah, um, I've written that. Yeah, got that as well. That drum is brilliant. I mean, I really like the energy. I think the album really needed it at this point. Honestly, the chorus hook doesn't really do a lot for me. I'm not a big fan of the, mm. the just the melodic writing in it. I mean, I like where they're coming from. I just don't think they necessarily got all the way there. I wish they'd taken a wee bit of time to maybe create something a little bit sweeter and a little bit catchier with that chorus. I think the bridge goes to a nice, big, stompy place. That's really fucking good. And, you know, unsurprisingly, invites Queens at Stone Age comparisons. Mm-hmm. The keys and the guitars being really up front and the, with the vocal and the backing vocal is really, really cool. And see when they bring it slowed down and bring the organ back in to the front and centre, it's really sinister. Uh, see that outro at the end, man. See if these guys weren't an indie band, that'd be heavy as fuck. But obviously, they are an indie band, so it's not yeah. heavy as fuck. This song was almost a single before My Propeller. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm hmm. But I can see, I can see why they didn't choose this because although it is would be a good single, it's not necessarily of this record. It sounds mm. much more like previous two records. It's true. Yeah, yeah. misleading. Um, and then track ten, uh, love a ten track album. Yeah, done in 40 minutes. Yep, Uh, under 40 minutes, yeah. To me, if this record had been bookended by another tune with as big a hook as My Propeller, I think it would overall have a stronger reputation than it does now. This song is fine, but I think the album kind of shrugs its way out. Uh, For example, I I, I would have happily seen it swapped with Dance Little Liar and Dance Little Liar become the last tune. So I feel you almost want to see the last tune through at the end and see how they finish and I think then that would have shone more of a light on that big ending of that tune I'm but not what sure they've, that- what they've done is they've done the rock final track and gone let's go a bit slower a bit bigger build it up Rather than the indie final track, which is like, let's finish on a big fucking hitter, mm-hmm. like on a catchy guy. I just it's a slightly disappointing conclusion for me, even as a yeah, because I album. I don't think it's I don't think it's big or rocky enough to be yeah. a big rocky finisher.
it just misses the target, and I, I do think that contributes a little bit to the to the sense of the album having a sort of Mark. What's that phrase for three full stops in a row? Ellipsis. And it, yeah, it's got like a little bit of that to me. It doesn't have a nice. Although in many nice ways that does kind of work because it teams it, it tees uh, suck it and see up as a yeah, follow up record, actually, and it that's comes true. up quickly and. Suck It and See builds on a lot of these themes and they are kind of, yeah, yeah partner albums to me. I mean, l- like, just in the context of this album, um, I think the, the length is perfectly judged. As I said, 10 tracks, just under 40 minutes. The vibe's challenging for the uninitiated. Um, I mean, albeit, I know that a lot of the people that listen to this podcast maybe take that stuff for granted. Bear in mind that the indie kids that Arctic Monkeys were playing to and were seen to be catering for found this kind of tough tune you know it was a challenge um, but I think that was bold and it was creative um, I think it maybe wears its Josh Home influences a little bit too apparently but the flavours that he brought out in them which seem to have been lurking there they tend to complement them and I think they served them well going forward especially as AM illustrates I think as indie bands go these guys had the you know the opportunity to be complacent with this record and waved it away and even if it doesn't set you in fire I think it deserves credit I think it maybe provides a wee glimmer of hope that that kind of all-consuming beast of commercial success, you know, despite the best efforts of the industry that's built up around it, doesn't necessarily extinguish every creative in, you know, instinct and interest and thought artists have. Um, my my closing arguments on the band before I like pass over to you guys. I think I think we as a podcast and we just people in general need to pick our battles. I don't think Arctic Monkeys, no matter whether they're your favourite band or far from it, are the thing that we should be directing or scoring at, necessarily. I don't fucking listen to them very often, but I think where they're coming from is pretty sincere, and I think they're definitely encouraging to a lot of young musicians. They're ultimately a real band. I mean, in amongst their fan base, you've got a big mix. You've got people that are fucking really passionate about music, and you get folk that just want to jump on their fucking boyfriend's shoulders and get pure mad with it. And fuck it, that's, that's fine. If it's these guys soundtracking that, I'd rather it was them. Young musicians watching them enthusiasm, see something that's far more attainable than the likes of WAP or whatever the fuck it is, even the killers I don't think the killers are anywhere near as organic or attainable a, 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 an end goal as the likes of Arctic Monkeys um, I mean it, fair play as well, you know, they're not conventionally handsome, I mean Alex Turner has got insane sex appeal now but he's sort of earned it, you know I, I, I think by virtue of just being an actual rock star inverted commas, you know, I, I, I think he got there through hard work yeah, okay, that's maybe idolatry, but if nothing else, it's a healthy body image. You know, it's a normal looking guy that just fucking made, made the most of his skills and has been put on a pedestal by, you know, as a result of his talents. Those are reasonably healthy messages. Um, I think, obviously, as I say, they've, they've shown at a few junctures now in their career a willingness to take commercial risks. They haven't always worked, as with the last album. Um, they definitely don't need the coverage. They definitely didn't need a double episode of this al- uh, this podcast. But it's only fair to acknowledge these things. And I think that this album, given that it was one of the biggest deviations and didn't land particularly well, really merits a discussion under that heading. Um, and as I said way back at the start of episode, uh, part one, uh, I just hope that we as a podcast can use it to demonstrate that we don't just shit in success. And that I personally, Chris, don't just shit in success because after the Biffy Clyro episode, we got a fair bit of that. He just doesn't like them because he did well. Well, yes, that is true about Biffy Clyro, but it's not true about Arctic Monkeys. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Dave? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting talking about them. It's interesting talking about really big bands because we don't often actually talk about bands that are so publicly known and like deliberately go out there to write big fucking songs for everybody. And yeah, I guess we talked about it at the beginning of last week's episode. I've never hold them. I've never had any ill will towards them. I've always sort of recognised that they are legitimate. Um, I thought they were sort of clever or funnier, more musically talented than the fucking Cooks or the Libertines and all that pish that came out. Um, Kaiser Chiefs. Yeah, exactly. And it, uh, as I say, it's interesting that a band can come out and be a sort of provincial internet hit working class and sort of speak for a lot of people and and really get the zeitgeist like their first record did and then be able to creatively grow and artistically grow whilst not selling out um i, I say all that and I, f- I feel like this is a band who are ba- yeah they're basically now just a national treasure can't be argued with anymore mm-hmm. this album is a very important turning point turning them from a working class sort of flashing the pan to a bona fide UK stadium rock band up there forever and allowed to do what they want to do, try their arm in America, sell lots of records. It is interesting. However, I just, and it is a solid record, but I just, I just don't find it quite interesting enough for me because (laughs) it's not rock enough to be really rocky. And then it's not indie enough to be, you know, sharp and, caustic um so i appreciate where it stands in their development as a band and i think it is interesting but i don't think it's their best record and i think their best records are their biggest records Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i don't think they are unsung i guess this is an unsung record but also it's it's not their it's not that good well no it is good but you know it's not it's not that good. It's not good enough to warrant me saying it should get in. Uh I don't Sorry. really know what I don't really know what to add to what Dave just said to be honest. Um I kinda feel much the same. This band, as we know, as we've discussed at the start of the first episode, that are not unsung. Don't think this this album deserves going into Sography because I don't really feel particularly good about donating my time to a band this fucking big. They're only going to continue to get bigger, probably as well. Depending, and they're on the legitimate sales. as well. It's not like we're, uh, it's not we're like we're coming in here and saying, "Oh, by the way, the Kaiser Chiefs are actually really good," <laughs> and like trying to. It's like everybody fucking likes the Arctic Monkeys. They're selling millions of records, and they are in a position where they are legitimate and allowed to put out a fucking David Bowie fucking concept Stanley Kubrick album. <laughs> um, so it's it's not like they need our credibility either. Let alone our our you know, credibility. Well, no, exactly. Like if we can't, we might not be able to offer fans, but we can offer uh, chin strokey uh, indie credibility. West End mm. points. I mean, it's a very small point. I actually, as we said about Tranquility Base uh, Hotel and Casino, I don't know if their fan base will continue to grow. I feel like they may have embarked down an avenue that is probably going to uh, have. Diminishing returns, mm-hmm. uh, unless they pull back from it, which they might. Uh, I I think they've gone too early into that sort of late period manic street preachers, flaming lips, fucking like Q Mojo magazine rock. Um, I don't think they're ready for that yet. But that's just my opinion. Let me put it this way: with the exception of of 
two songs on Purple Rain. This album Uh-oh. has. This, well, this, we this, we're going to get. We're nearly all going to the way until the end. For this the album, this album has more plays per song than with, than with the exception of two songs on Purple Rain. Yeah, but how many fucking copies has it sold, Mark? That is like apples and oranges, man. That was released when people were buying like physical copies of things and listening to it on radio. That is just not the case anymore. Radio is Spotify now. How many fucking times has Prince been played in the radio? My God, man. Probably probably now, probably just, a, I mean, I bet Mark Arthur Monkeys get paid quite a lot in radio now. More Probably more than Prince does. But, but even, not for the last We're talking about, years. in terms of legacy, legacy plays, then yeah, Mark's got yeah. a point. I think these guys will, will have the same amount of legacy plays for sure. I don't think they'll go. I mean, I this that, album I won't though. This album won't. None of this. Yeah, but that's because it's not. It doesn't have any fucking singles on it. <laughs> it th- th- that's my point. But this album, like the AM, will definitely get massive legacy Absolutely, plays. Yeah, sure. this won't. Yeah, this was so key to yeah, the, but to like AM possible. I mean, oh, there must be an uh, there must be an analogy here. Like just because, uh, say somebody fucking had an acid trip right and it it made them really like see the universe in a different way and then they came out and they started writing amazing fucking poetry or whatever we we should read the poetry and accept the poetry we don't need to hear the guy talk about his fucking acid trip so just because something is influential and important in somebody's development doesn't mean that we should give time to it we should appreciate that it happened and then listen to the stuff that it's influenced I actually kind of enjoyed the acid trip more than the <laughs> and I think that's kind of the point. Well, I yeah. think on the whole, um, it was interesting to listen to this band for me because I, I, I just, I generally just, I wouldn't say dismissed them, but just blanked them. Well, the maybe I said in episode one about how a yeah. band just ends up being there, mm-hmm. looming in pop culture, just like over everything, omnipresent, and as a result, like maybe people like us and people like our listeners, we we tend to just sort of disregard them. We don't really engage with them. Yeah, there's ones. a lot of bands that I've disregarded because they're fucking. They're, yeah, they're there, <laughs> and I just can't yeah. be bothered. Yeah, you're like other oh, overrepresented. I don't need to go there, and some of them actually do have some interesting stories. And I think this band and their development and some of their creative decisions and the risks that they took is actually kind of deserves some acknowledgement. I mean, they they don't need our fucking pat in the back. They don't need our money, but yeah. they do deserve a bit of acknowledgement for being one of the few encouraging signs I see in the contemporary big stage you know as like you know setting setting a good example for young musicians being like if you want to do something that's a bit uh, off piece then fucking just do it you know just try it Mm. okay so next week we're doing Radiohead's OK Computer (laughs) and then the week after we're doing The Beatles White Album Radiohead the middle class Arctic Monkeys I've got got, got to say by the way I I think that the fact that the the last album wasn't a huge commercial success will eat away Alex Turner I think the next one will have Big singles on it, maybe. Yeah, you might be right. Yeah, you that's a good point. Right. He wants to and be. maybe maybe Alex will have uh, surrendered a little bit of his clout, and that the, the the label officials will have a little bit more to go back to and be like, right, Jerry. Yes, this time. Right, anyway, when <laughs> it's not up to us; it's up to you, the listener, to go and vote for this. Where can they vote for this, Mark? Twitter should go in or out. Is Twitter, Twitter now? Facebook is fucked again. Oh, fuck's sake. Okay, so it's twitter.com slash unsung. MySpace. Yep. MySpace. MySpace is where it's at, guys. MySpace it's, it's It's the vinyl of the internet. As uh, Okay, what time is it? It's Nexus time. Nexus. 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 Nexus.
Paul Fildes was later awarded uh, a medal after the war for for his work, uh, which I, I dare say might not have looked good in retrospect had Operation Vegetarian gone ahead. Um, in the preparations for that, they took over an island called Greenard off the west coast of Scotland. Between it's Gerlach. about 10 miles from Allapool. Yeah, exactly, between Gerlock and Ullapool. Uh The UK military, in its wisdom, uh, decided Scotland was the perfect place to detonate an anthrax weapon. So uh, a highly virulent strain of anthrax called Volum 14578 was placed atop a tower and detonated on the island. There's actually footage of this in existence that came out um, and it shows this kind of weird brown aerosol drifting across the island and then later clips of the footage show like the mass incineration of the dead livestock that was put there to test it Dave, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this but uh, Greenard Island was conspicuously removed from maps for Mm -hmm. many, many, many years at the orders of the British government Um, The story It was left contaminated for so long Yep, absolutely, so the story has played a part in a lot of plot lines uh, everything from Ian Rankin novels uh, Hawaii Five-O Mm-hmm. Episodes uh, through to graphic novels like Hellblazer. Uh, in, in one edition of Hellblazer, Greenard is an island of cannibal zombie children as a result of the testing that went on. Um, very interestingly, uh, in 1981, this led to a thing called Operation Dark Harvest. Anyone ever heard of this? No. Nope. This is fucking incredible. So basically, this kind of, to this day, mysterious group of uh, eco-protesters, Scottish eco-protesters certainly protesting against the fact that England, British government but England specifically sought to use Scotland as a testing site they uh, landed on the island in secret uh, with the help apparently of locals and they smuggled £300 of Greenard soil off the island they then announced publicly uh, their intention to deliver parcels of that soil around the UK. Um, one of those parcels was actually sent to the Conservative Party conference in Blackpool, uh, and another one, which tested positive for anthrax, uh, was sent to the English military research base at Portendown, where the programme had originated. Um, wow. Fascinating story, honestly. And in 1986, kind of on the back of that, uh, the Conservative government made a big show of trying to decontaminate the island, um, even declaring it clean uh, in 1990. Although it's interesting to note that they sent a junior minister, <laughs> just <laughs> just in case. Um, but that island was off maps and certainly was under some form of quarantine uh, for the best part of 48 years. Incredible story, like amazing. I'd never heard of it. I was fascinated by it. Uh, as I mentioned, Ian Rankin incorporated the Greenard. Is it is it Greenard? Is that how it's pronounced? Wait, well, I always knew it as uh, Grunard. Just Grunard. Grunard. Right, yeah. sorry, it's G R U I N A R D. Um, apologies to the what was it? 18, it was eighteen residents or something on it or something. Like anyway, um. Ian Rankin incorporated it in his 2011 novel, The Impossible Dead. Uh, Ian Rankin, Scottish writer, quite famous. Uh, in 2019, he, he donated 50 boxes of documents, manuscripts and correspondence to the National Museum of Scotland. I think he was moving flat. Um, and that included correspondence with people uh, as diverse as Ruth Rendell, Jilly Cooper, Val McDermott and J.K. Rowling. Uh, J.K. Rowling. It uh, was the author of the Harry Potter books, including Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows, and conspiracy time. Uh, <laughs> the Deathly Hallows, uh, which in the book is a a cloak, a stone, and a wand. Well, there's three icons, and those three icons put together form a symbol of like a circle divided by a line within a triangle, which 
if you know the Teletubbies, is Dipsy, <laughs> Tinky Winky, and Poe's little antenna. So the three Deathly Hallows logos are exactly three of the Teletubbies uh, little antenna shapes. And then the fourth one, which I'm sure you know is Lala, who has that weird yellow spiked twirly thing, really closely represents the lightning strike on Harry Potter's head. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's incredible led- that basic shapes could be used <laughs> in two cultural uh, phenomena. So that's obviously led to loads of crossover fan bollocks online, conspiracy stuff, and clearly the baby son wakes up the telly tubbies each day, and also the baby son might be a demon, just adding that at the end, in case any of you guys use that for yours, because it's a fascinating <laughs> conspiracy theory in itself. If you pause telly tubbies, loads of online wackos think that the baby son transforms into a demon just as it comes over the hill. Bye. Ah. Oh, wow. Uh, Mark? Uh, cool. Yeah, okay, let's go for it. Um, Josh Holmes' hands are all over this record. He did a story on uh, Bedtime Stories with uh, on CBBS in 2017. Josh Holmes famously hates the Teletubbies, like very famously hates them. Um, but his segment aired just after an episode of Teletubbies on that very same day. <laughs> so you, um, you, know, you realise, Mark, that Alex Turner did one of those as well. So you did actually got there on less steps. I didn't know that. I googled that and I couldn't find anything. How, how did yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, Shit, you man. Fuck. I've also got a wee quick one, but um, in 2006, then-Chancellor, future Prime Minister Gordon Brown said that he was a fan of the Arctic Monkeys, but then was uh, questioned, what's your favourite song? And he could not name a song. He uh, then later admitted that he actually liked Coldplay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Of course. Uh, Gordon Brown, he was uh, followed as Prime Minister by famous Smiths fan David Cameron. Uh, David Cameron in you mean charmless man. <laughs> oh yes, that's very satire. Very good. <laughs> um, in 2011, uh, David Cameron was on the One Show, the uh, BBC After News sort of magazine show, and host Matt Baker, who used to be on Blue Peter, um, asked him, "How on earth do you sleep at night?" <laughs> <laughs> don't know if you remember that. He just, yeah, he, yeah, which was like amazing. Then everybody sort of came out and said, "Holy shit, Matt Baker just." Uh, <laughs> and David Cameron just went, "Oh, uh, you know." So it, it's never actually been confirmed if he was like, "How do you sleep at night?" Being a Tory cunt, or how, how do you sleep at night? Oh uh, no, know, being I mean, a stressed that, man or whatever. He was definitely, definitely doing the former. Like it was, yeah, yeah. Um, and anyway, uh, Matt Baker. In um, 2017, interviewed uh, the actors Dipsy and Lala, um, and it was for a big uh, yet yeah, Teletubby reappearance. And Matt Baker, Holly Willoughby, Lorraine Kelly, just everybody. They did the whole fucking media early gig, but uh, the the son was nowhere to be there because the son, uh, they're not even sure who who it is. No, there's the the there's played by Jess uh, Smith in the original series and. Berry surname unknown in the revival series. Yeah, there's there's a photo of the girl that was the original son. She's like obviously all grown up now, and it's it's quite yeah entertaining. And then right, it's probably just somebody on the production team's baby. Then they've just got all right. We need a baby. Oh, I think point. I actually think uh, I, I was reading about a, a little bit. I could be totally wrong here, but I think her mum might have been a caution designer for Teletubbies. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Um, nice. Anyway, that's 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 uh, 
Arctic Monkeys to Teletubbies. Great. <laughs> Alright, what we did next week? I don't know, tell, tell us. Oh, it's uh, my show, isn't it? Yeah, next week I'm doing something um, that I wanted to do for ages. I could do a musician called Arthur Russell. Um, and the album we're going to do is actually called Calling Out of Context. And it was released, it's a compilation album released 12 years after his death. So I believe this is the first sort of compilation greatest hits record that we're doing. Mm, yeah. But um, yeah, a big part of why we're doing that will be talking about his career and the fact that very varied but also and yeah and he doesn't really have a defining album from uh from his lifetime but he's got a fucking vast array of incredible music so looking forward to that uh who are we connecting him to who's the nexus oh back to me doing it as soon as from you guys box. aren't here yeah. jesus Okay. As ever, if you have any suggestions, please drop them via comment on any social media platform you can imagine. Apart from yeah, TikTok. we just have to connect whatever artist we are doing to any character, real or mystical, um, that you can think of, and we'll we'll try our best to make it interesting, and or short, and uh, or involve Nazis. Well, we're actually we're nexus into two people, sort of Chaz mm-hmm. and Dave. Ah. Oh right, okay. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> courtesy of Johnny K. Shiv uh, on Instagram. All right, yeah, that's a good one. We'll try that. Cool. All right, troops. Well, I might go yeah, listen to Nirvana or Queens of Stone Age now. Bye. Bye. <laughs>